Welcome everyone to the um, second part of our active environmentalism talks. And we're talking about uh, rewilding in particular, but we're really talking about a much more uh, uh, broader role, important role, and rightly so, because uh, for those uh, who have uh, followed Greer, you will know that you know, he stands as chairman of the Conservative Environmental Network uh, and also as a board member on DEFRA. Uh, so the environment has been uh, super close to your heart forever, Ben, I know. And so thank you, firstly, for joining us here um, this evening. It really is uh, a great pleasure for me to have someone who's got this uh, insight and in-depth history to talk us through some of uh, what we're doing right, some of what we're doing wrong, uh, and hopefully some of the sort of narrow footpaths we might be able to follow uh, to lead us out of the conundrums that we find ourselves in uh, from an environmental point of view uh, uh, today. So thank you. Um, we, I wondered, um, just as we're sort of uh, chatting, I mean, was there a moment for you when the kind of environment became a thing? Because you, I think you also look after your family's foundation, I think, don't you, in terms of looking after uh, the uh, investment in uh, renewables um, and um, the uh, environmental uh, funders network. Is Was there a sort of a moment, did you look at a thing? I mean, something I went down and sort of kind of looked at the sort of stagnation of water and I thought, gosh, it really is a minimal life going here. We have to do something about this. So was there a moment for you? Yeah, I mean, well, for, first of all, thank you so much for asking me. I've, I've got a hint of imposter syndrome looking at the lineup you've had previously, and I don't claim to be an expert really in anything. Um, an enthusiast, for sure, and um, you know, just a bit of a story to tell, hopefully, that amuses and interests you, but I'm certainly not an expert. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been deeply in love with nature and fascinated by the natural world since I can remember. Um, my, my earliest memories are of building a pond in my garden growing up with my older brother Zach who's six years older than me and has a similar love for nature. Um, he used to drag me out of bed at five in the morning and we'd go looking for badgers and fox cubs on, on, on Richmond Park right next to where we grew up and we were putting up bird boxes. Um, I mean I think, I think he's almost the only person I can think of who was more obsessed than me. I remember him rescuing a baby blackbird once trying to keep it alive as I think so many people have done and failing and I got bollocked for not paying enough attention at the funeral that he organized for this, <laughs> this little bird. But I mean, it's, it, I, I think a, a love of nature really is um, intrinsic to kind of who I am. And it's my greatest interest, my greatest passion, my greatest solace. Um, and, and if you love nature and are fascinated by it, you can't help but notice the depletion that has taken place in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Just to bring you back in on that point, because one of the uh, concerns going on at the moment is this sort of slight inability for us to even see because we all only judge within the lifetimes that we that we live in um, uh, so to be able to sort of see within a life cycle the changes that are happening in the environment is uh, is pretty extraordinary when we think about the shortness of our lives yeah I mean I think the the, the, the kind of the, the state of nature is one of almost incomprehensible abundance if 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 allowed. And the stories from kind of 150, 200 years ago of the kind of abundance that we had in our country are just mind blowing. Um, I, I read an account by a guy called Oliver Goldsmith, no relation, I don't, I don't think, who described the herring coming in for their annual spawning visit off Blackpool in about 1790. And it's quoted in, in George Monbiot's book, Feral, which had a big impact on me. And he describes a shoal 10 miles by 10 miles, you know, like a single creature trying to lift itself out of bed. And he described this shoal harried on all sides by different types of tuna and sharks of all kinds and whales and dolphins and innumerable seabirds. And he said that when the shoal finally moved offshore, it left behind um, eggs six feet deep on the seabed. Um, so th these kinds of spectacles have just disappeared. Um, if you, if, you, if you read descriptions of the, the number of songbirds that would have been found in kind of 1880s England, 
yeah. enormous numbers of songbirds. So I think the declines we read about in magazines and newspapers and updates from the RSPB and National Trust and so on, which refer to the period 1970 to now or 1980 to now, I think they're a drop in the ocean as compared with what we've lost over a longer period. Yeah. Um, I, and I think the declines are in the 90s, high 90s of percent. I, I read recently that the, the eel, which once made up 60% of all freshwater fish biomass in Europe is arguably down 99% plus um, in the last thousand years. I'm, so th this idea of shifting baseline syndrome, I think is, um, mm. is real. And I think that we, we need to think bigger when it comes to putting things back together. But I wonder if it's worth me um, just briefly describing kind of you know, what I do, Johnny, and, um, and why you've asked me to come I think and talk here. Uh, it would be a fantastic introduction to the, uh, to the talk. Thank you very much, and um, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I, um, because really, really I, I'm. You, you mentioned kind of investments, and I, that, that's sort of what my day job is. I, I run investments. I've, I've got a a, a, a a green industrial investment fund called Manhattan. That's I'm chief executive, and we have a small team, and we try to run our investments in in a way that is responsible and ethical and in line with with our beliefs and and which bro broadly defined invests in in kind of green areas um mm. so that's that's sort of what i do day to day to day and um but i've i've always found my kind of true interest is in nature and in, in trying to hustle on behalf of some of the best kind of initiatives around the restoration of nature and 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 it's i suffered a calamity in my personal life um 18 months ago and since then i've i've really sort of decided that I want to devote as much time as I can to this stuff because it's what I think about when I wake up in the morning and it's what I care about and it feels um it, it matters to me a, a lot more than anything else um so I I've I, I I do a couple of things outside of my investing life I I chair the conservative environment network um which we actually started in 2012 and it really does what it says on the tin um pe people assume nowadays that to care for the environment is sort of a left-wing issue. Um, and um, and uh, I, I think that's quite new. Um, the, the kind of conservatives generally have quite a rich history of, of tackling the environment crisis. In fact, we, we call teddy bears, teddy bears, because Teddy Roosevelt in, introduced protection for bears and other wildlife in America, the first kind of Endangered Species Act. Um, mm. You know, so that you know, conservative president of the United States was was the one who brought in those protections. And 50 odd years later, Richard Nixon introduced the Clean Air Act um, and declared that all American waterways should be fishable, swimmable and drinkable. He brought in the Clean Water Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, and, um, and has probably a richer legacy of, of action to fix the environment than any other president. And, um, and then and then Reagan and Thatcher fixed the ozone crisis. I mean, quite literally rallied world leaders to form the Montreal Protocol, which banned chlorofluorocarbons from refrigeration and air conditioning, and the ozone layer, which was um, um, opening up in a very frightening and existentially dangerous way, is now healing itself and closing. Um, it's it was Mrs. Thatcher, who was the first world leader to talk about climate change. So there is quite a rich tradition of conservatives doing stuff to, to, to tackle these issues. And that's somehow been forgotten in the last 15 to 20 years, and we've kind of ceded the territory you know, broadly defined to the left. And I think that's unhealthy because this is the, the mother of all issues. And we need people from all parts of the political spectrum looking at ways to fix these, these crises. So the Conservative Environment Network um, sort of agitates within the Conservative Party here for ambitious policies around environmental restoration. And we've got a caucus which began with just 12 MPs, which now numbers 100. And we're probably the most important voting bloc within the Conservative Party today. We, we, we can get 50, 60 MPs to show up at number 10 Downing Street to complain about something or to ask for something. Um, and, and I think we're now seeing for the first time ever um, meaningful stuff being done by the government. I mean, the environment is kind of top of the agenda every time Boris Johnson stands on a, on a non-COVID platform. Um, so the Conservative Environment Network is, is a thing that I've helped to build and I chair and we've got a team of eight and we're about to expand that and internationalize it. We want to work with conservatives in Canada, the US, Brazil, Germany, Australia, and, and, and remind them that actually you know, core values of conservatism 
um, you know, our, our stewardship, for example, stewardship of the things we all share, um, responsibility towards future generations, you know, resilience, the, the, these things are all environmental um, um, kind of core tenets. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one thing I do. And then, and then I was lucky enough to be invited onto the board of DEFRA and um, the, the imposter syndrome there is a lot bigger than even I'm feeling here right now. But I, I did find myself sitting around that board table three years ago and I've had a really unbelievable opportunity to kind of hustle for nature within DEFRA, um, especially when Michael Gove was there because he's quite a big thinking guy who is happy to take on vested interests and happy to kind of break things in order to rebuild them. Um, and um, the, the, the days of kind of tokenistic gestures by government, I think are behind us. You know, we all remember kind of, you know, George Osborne's million pounds for tree planting, you know, and another million for church roofs, or, um, or um, you know, or, yeah. or, or, or even more recently, Mrs. May's five million for a kind of northern forest. Yeah. You know, well, the, the, the nature of a carbon fund, which was announced just, just under a year ago, is 640 million pounds. Um, the the environment, bill, environment Bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, unlocks enormous funding for a whole stream of different um, kind of environmental actions. So it feels to me like real stuff is happening. Um, Three billion of overseas aid is going to be directed towards restoring nature in poorer countries. That compares with about 25 million five years ago. Um, so it's, it's really a dramatic expansion of funding and kind of regulation around this stuff. And um, I think given the title, I think the title of this, this discussion was around kind of our own countryside and, and, and farming well, and so on. I'll, ask, I'll steer you uh, a little, if I, if I, if I may, and it's, it's, it's yeah. good to, uh, it's good to see um, the phraseology of, of politics, I suppose, defining to some degree uh, the capacity for the environment to be uh, both beyond a political issue and also uh, beyond a political issue. Um, and the language that we've used to describe this is active environmentalism. And I suppose in a way we would phrase that as the transition from protest, which has been a very important part of this, uh, bringing the environment to the front of the agenda, to active environmentalism as opposed to environmental activism, which is more of a participatory Thing where we're conscious that the gearing of the environment has to be part of our day-to-day -day life and in that sense you know rightly or to itemize it um, as a beyond political um, role it's a, it's a leadership role uh, for our society and so um, the ways that we could do that we could tackle this on two ways and to pick up on where you were just about to take us I think you're right to because you were talking about depletion uh, of ecosystems within our own lifetime. And so one of the aspects of this is, is the question of rewilding and pushing back towards uh, that. And that I think I'd love to uh, go through with you as a journey. And perhaps we could end up uh, in a discussion about how um, industry and commerce and the environment can perhaps tie up together as a sort of technical solution um, as well, and obviously at that point, please, we'd love you to, as a community to join us in some, your own thoughts as well. But um, I think rewilding has caught the imagination. I think you described it, or I've seen it described as wilder farming, which is perhaps an interesting other way of looking at it. But what does rewilding mean from from your experience and understanding? So I, I think, so I'm a big believer in in, in this term. There are some who say the term is off-putting or has been um, made toxic by the debate in some way. I, I, I'm unashamedly um, of the belief that, that, that we need to rewild the world, to quote David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's not, in my view, at the expense of food production. Mm -hmm. And I think the backdrop is, is the environmental land management scheme. I mean, I, I think the most important environmental win that we've ever seen in this country is the end of the common agricultural policy and its replacement with an environmental land management scheme yeah. and, and 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 actually it's the reason why i voted leave i i i wasn't completely sold on remain versus leave and obviously that's not a discussion we particularly want to have here on this call um, but i i ended up voting leave almost solely for that reason because the common agricultural policy used to dish out um, and, and actually right now still does dish out three million pounds three billion pounds a year to, to farm businesses in the UK yeah. with really no strings attached. Cross compliance is pretty moderate. 
And the problem with that is it creates an incentive to turn every square inch into farmland, no matter how suitable it is for farming. So with that little wet patch in the corner of your farm, which is great for butterflies and wading birds, well, if you don't plow it up and farm it, you don't get your subsidy and a satellite is watching. Or, or that hillside, which is a bit too steep, if you let the scrub start to regenerate or you decide to leave that patch of brambles um, because of the benefits for birds and so on, well, the satellite will spot it and you'll lose your basic payments for, for those in, ineligible features. Mm -hmm. So what the Common Agricultural Policy did was incentivize intensive farming everywhere, no matter what the suitability of that land. Now that that's finishing and being replaced with the new system that goes under the term public money for public good, mm. the money remains the same, about three billion, mm. but every pound of that will be linked to some kind of public benefit and there'll be a list of things that you can do. And I think that will translate into kind of fundamentally two categories. Mm. I think on the really productive land, the land which feeds us, so 20, 25% of Britain, which produces 80, 85% of the food that we produce, I think that will translate to a, a steady shift towards regenerative approaches. So regenerative farming, regenerative farming, which is as productive as it possibly can be, but which also seeks to regenerate the soil through things like no-till, where plowing doesn't take place and seeds are drilled directly into the soil, thereby reducing soil erosion. I think farmers will be rewarded to try things like integrated pest management, which help to reduce the amount of chemical inputs they're using. Um, combinations of satellites and drones and, and soil sensors will, will accelerate the kind of move away from heavy inputting of chemicals. A kind of combination of modern technology with the best of kind of ancient wisdom, yeah. I think can give us a really, really productive, really sustainable farming sector that, that, I think, that I think we can be proud of. And I think that the rest of the world will look to emulate. So I think in, in places where intensive farming really does work and, and makes tremendous sense and, and places in, in, in which most of our food is already being produced, I think the emphasis of the new scheme will be to reward farmers for, for, for going in that direction, regenerative farming. I think in addition, they'll be rewarded for creating corridors of nature, for example, along rivers and streams. Um, I think you know, even in those places, there are corners and edges and places where farming isn't particularly easy. I think they'll be rewarded for leaving those buffers and those places a bit wilder. And I think in the, in the rest of the country, I think we'll get rewilding. And I think that that is you know, a big chunk of, of Britain. We're talking kind of you know, three quarters of our farmland in which intensive farming, in my view, doesn't make much sense. And I think that if we can reward farmers for de-intensifying, then I think that we'll have dramatic, dramatic outcomes for nature. Um, and, and that doesn't mean ceasing food production. It means shifting away from intensive food production, from flogging land to produce as much as you can from it, which is not particularly suitable for that kind of approach. And I, I, I've got some examples of that, which, um, which I'd like to tell you about. Okay. And um, please do, because I think it, I mean, it's important. I would judge our audience with the capacity to understand the the concerns um, for where we currently stand um, and I think we're keen to if you like um, consider and embrace the potential uh, I think you're right to itemize if there was going to be a victory to come out of um, separation from Europe then the potential to run our own um, environmental um, uh, legacy is, is is clearly a very exciting exciting one so we'd absolutely to hear where we're going with that so i think there are um i think there are fundamentally four ways in which in particular england um can engage in rewilding mm -hmm. and i think that that, that that wilder farming is the same thing because i think farmers are integral to that process as well as being the backbone of rural society in Britain. I mean, the Lake District without hill farmers is unimaginable from a kind of economic, societal and cultural perspective. And, and, and that aside, I think farmers are also integral to the natural regeneration or the rewilding of the landscape. And, and the reason for that is that the cattle have always been a keystone species in, in the British and the wider European landscape. Mm -hmm. So without cattle, or, or their wild ancestors, the wild ox and the wild bison, which numbered in, in the millions in Britain. Without those, you end up with a dense closed canopy forest. 
And the lesson of NEP, the, the famous rewilding project in Sussex, is that those dense closed forests are not as valuable for nature by any stretch as the kind of open mosaic forest that you get in the presence of cattle. So cattle are engineers, they're clumsy, they're a bit lazy, they're not as agile as sheep. They browse and they graze and they trample and they shit and they, they create a kind of mosaic woodland in which you have kind of great open patches that are rich in wildflowers, you get scrub, you get dotted big trees and it's that kind of open wood pasture, which is about as rich a habitat for anything you can conceive of from songbirds to uh, edible mushrooms, to wildflowers, to berries. It's, it's it, for all sorts of things, it's about as valuable as you can get in Britain. So to my mind, having native cattle meandering through the landscape is, is an essential part of the mix. Mm. And therefore what we need to do to restore our ancient wood pastures, which once blanketed most of the west of Britain and certainly our uplands, places like Dartmoor, Exmoor, the Lake District, the Pennines, these Yorkshire Dales, these places which have been reduced in my mind to great denuded wet deserts. You know, I, I, I mean, I, it's actually quite, for me, it's quite distressing. You go to the center of Dartmoor and look out and see nothing, nothing for miles in all directions, or you go up to parts of the Lake District and see nothing. I, I find that quite distressing. I think they're some of the most degraded landscapes in all of Europe because they've been so overgrazed by attempts to make intensive sheep ranching work. And yeah. so if we can reward those farmers to move back to the kind of farming that their ancestors did for hundreds of years, which is the extensive grazing of native cattle, we will see the gentle blooming of, of that wood pasture. It will recover. And it's already happening. Um, the, the, if you look up on Instagram, the Horned Beef Company, that's just one of lots of examples of Lake District farmers and, and other upland farmers who are shifting to native cattle and marketing this high value, wild, delicious beef through box schemes and so on. Mm. And so I think that that first and foremost is the best possibility we have for a dramatic restoration of nature in Britain. Reward farmers in the least productive places, those who are trying to make a living uh, flogging the land with enormous numbers of sheep. There are, I think, more than 30 million sheep in Britain now, which compares with about 500,000 um, towards the end of Queen Victoria's reign. So a massive, massive increase in the number of sheep in Britain, um, all driven by subsidy. And it's not really working. The average age of hill farmers creeps up every year. Um, the average net income of hill farmers is very, very slim, very difficult to live off. And, and the total subsidies that they receive amounts to a big proportion of their total revenues, in some cases 80, 90%. So it's not an economic or social model that's working. And ecologically, large numbers of sheep in these fragile environments are a disaster. So, so for me, the best opportunity for rewilding is to restore the wood pastures everywhere from Dartmoor all the way up to the Lake District in Cumbria and, and beyond. Um, so that, that for me, and I think wilder farming is the, is the silver bullet. Um, I, think, I think the second big, opportunity for rewilding is in our wetland environments. So the one I live nearest to is the Somerset Levels. Mm -hmm. And the Somerset Levels were, um, you read some of the descriptions, I mean, it was the Camargue or the Okavango of Western Britain. Mm. I mean, an extraordinary landscape, 140,000 acres of seasonal wetland, little islands, all the towns and villages are built on little hills. Glastonbury used to be an island for half the year. Mm. And um, you have had extraordinary wildlife there beavers, enormous numbers of salmon and eels. You'd have had wild boar, all, all sorts of creatures. Mm. And it was, the Victorians began the process of really seriously draining it. The, the, the bits and pieces were done before then. And then there were some big drainage projects during the war and after the war. And the, the consequence is that about 90% of the Somerset levels was drained. Um, and the result of that has been the drying out of the peat such that each year the Somerset levels belches out more greenhouse gases than the whole of the rest of Somerset added up. So if you were theoretically to re-wet the levels, you would instantly halve the total greenhouse gas emissions of Somerset. So you've got a massive climate impact there, but you also have pretty unproductive, low-grade livestock farming, intensive livestock farming, which in economic terms is something of a madness. I mean, taxpayers spend in the region of 10 million pounds a year keeping the water out. They spend another 10 million pounds or thereabouts subsidizing farming in, in the levels. And total farm income for the levels is a fraction of those two numbers added up. I mean, a small fraction of those two numbers added up. 
So economically speaking, it's an absurdity. So if we can reward farmers in the, in the Somerset levels to allow water back on their land seasonally and to move back to the kind of seasonal grazing that gave Somerset its name, in which some, the summertime was when you went in and grazed it and in the winter you didn't, and if they were also part of a new economy built around visitor income and carbon sequestration and flood mitigation and just the basic saving of the taxpayers' money, um, I think you could, um, yeah, you, and it's an inevitability in any case because the sea, is, sea levels are rising, we're getting more and more flood events, heavier rainfall, it's becoming increasingly difficult to keep the water out anyway. I think it's, um, it's, a logical, it's a logical way forward for these landscapes and there's four or five landscapes like it in Britain where I think we need to be doing rewetting and rewilding. The, the Wetland and Wildfowls Trust, or Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, I can't remember which it is, have proposed the recreation of 100,000 hectares of wetland in Britain. Um, and um, I, you know, I, th I think that report is worth you all looking at. And I think um, it's is an that inevitability wetland? that that will come about. Yeah, so the wetland wildlife. I think, so this is, a, so the, the picture you're uh, painting for, us, I think quite right and I, I'm interested to see the sort of um, I suppose the economic structure coming into this because I think once if you like I mean I would guess that uh, once you if you like solve the principle uh, then it's a matter of how you enact the practice and and yeah. so the there's a there's a, rep there's a report coming out the, the Somerset Wildlife Trust and others are putting together a, a detailed economic analysis of the levels which I think will will highlight the absurdity of the current arrangement Mm. Um, so, so I, I think there are two other opportunities which I'll just touch on. I yeah. think um, rainforests, you know, people don't think about Britain and rainforests, but actually we are a rainforest nation. Um, temperate rainforest is an incredibly rare habitat, exceptionally rich and very, very rare. And there was a band of rainforest that used to stretch down the western coast of Britain and Ireland, France, Spain and Portugal, which has more or less completely disappeared. There are tiny pockets of it. And I think we need a national effort to reward landowners for restoring that rainforest belt down the western fringe of Britain. Um, so I, th I think I think that we'll see policy on that. I, th I think you know, exactly. I sort of hope that the prime minister will stand up and say at the conference of the parties on biodiversity, it's not just the tropical belt which has rainforests. We have rainforests, and we're going to do our utmost to restore them. And I think that that's something that we might see. And then finally, I think wild belts. It's all very well having these citadel landscapes, but if you don't connect them up, then they are diminished. So even if we restore nature on Dartmoor and Exmoor, we need to connect them with corridors. And doing so using streams and river corridors is the perfect solution because it doesn't involve taking valuable land out of food production. And you also deliver a whole bunch of other goals. So if we can restore 20 or 30 yard wild buffers on either side of every stream and river in the country, we create a ready-made nature recovery network or a wild belt, to quote the prime minister at his conference speech. But you also help to reduce flooding with natural flood management. You also lock up a lot of carbon. You also deliver on these increasingly outlandish manifesto promises to plant a ton of new woodland. Mm. Um, and, you, um, and you also mitigate potential conflict with beavers. And I am obsessed with beavers. So if you'll allow me, I'll just two minutes on beavers. So beavers went extinct in Britain in the 15th century. And um, through unofficial releases, they're now back on five or six river systems in Devon, Somerset, Wiltshire and Kent. They're back on the Tay in Scotland. And beavers are really the ultimate keystone species. It's, it's as if the term keystone species was invented to describe the beaver. In fact, they were worshipped in antiquity in, in the Middle East. Um, and they were known as water dogs, and there are mm. uh, scrolls from kind of sort of pre-Christ um, Iraq uh, mm. threatening terrible punishments for people who killed a, a beaver, which ultimately they did. Um, and in North America, the Native Americans worshipped the beaver and called them little people for the engineering that they do in the environment because they dam up the rivers and, 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 and creeks and streams, which are small and temporary. So imagine a stream which runs dry every summer and brings you a flash flood every winter. And if you put 500 beaver dams along it, when the rains come, the water stays behind the dams. So you create these permanent pools, which are a haven for everything from dragonflies to songbirds, to amphibians, to fish, to wildflowers. And also you reduce flash flooding downstream and you reduce drought. And if you're in a place that's prone to wildfire, well, beaver wetlands are the ultimate fire break too. 
So, so beavers are back. They bring enormous economic, social, and environmental benefits. They also bring the potential for conflict and they need management um, uh, in that circumstance. But by setting aside 20 or 30 yards on either side of every stream and river, 95% of the conflict disappears because they can do their thing and we don't have to interfere with it. So I think that, um, I think that a wild belt is, 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 is another place in which we can deliver rewilding, um, working with farmers, paying them to set aside land on either side of their rivers and streams. And I think that in the context of beavers, I also think we need a species reintroduction plan. I think we need to be a lot braver. And Kazakhstan is bringing back tigers. My brother-in-law in Pakistan, where he's prime minister, is about to reintroduce the Asiatic one-horned rhinoceros to the Indus Delta after a 200-year absence. Um, the Saudi Arabian government is reintroducing leopards to the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. That there is a movement now for restoring things that we have smashed. And I think that we need to put a national effort together to bring back beavers and white-tailed eagles and white storks and and uh, and and lynx, uh, which are in the press today, and wildcats and and so on. So um, I'd like to see a, a national plan for species reintroductions. And again, working with farmers and landowners. So I, I'm a fanatic about rewilding, but I I don't see any I don't see any reason why that should materially diminish food production, and I also don't see why it, it shouldn't be a boon for farmers. Um, it's a really rather than a threat. I think I, mean, I would summarise and thank you, Ben. I, I think it's lovely to hear, and I share, embrace, and support your uh, positivity and also belief in in what's in what's possible. Because if we don't have that, we really won't be going anywhere. Um, and so, it's, and it's important. Uh, it's more. It's a central issue. Uh, I think it paraphrases for me quite well. Um, the value of, or potential, if you like, I suppose, of using, uh, if I was to summarize, sort of government money to re or to, uh, to start it by putting value back into the systems that we perhaps have neglected. So the elements you've discussed, uh, we now appreciate them that could be brought to our attention. And we're notionally looking at financing them from, uh, from government money because proportionally, probably, it may well represent better economics. Um, I, I guess there's a sort of untold question there, which for me, there was, and it's not necessarily for you to directly answer, but I would just position it that uh, the sort of cost of uh, manufacturing in terms of agriculture may well go up accordingly. So we may, as a society, and it may not, uh, well, this will have ramifications. It may have need to have other solutions uh, that the cost of production of um, our sort of uh, food and energy supply would go up. So I, I guess we've got to figure out how that elements going to be kind of squared away yes. to really make this a perfect argument? So I think um, I don't see an impact on energy. I think that I think that ultimately energy is becoming ubiquitously cheap because mm. solar is just getting cheaper and cheaper. Same with wind. Mm. And I don't think that those things um, overlap with, with the discussion we're having. So I think with energy, the direction of travel is, is the same as it is for um, uh, broadband or for um, uh, computing power. I think that I'm a huge optimist that we're moving into a world in which energy is ubiquitous and extremely cheap. But in terms of food, well, I think food is structurally too cheap anyway. Politically, it's quite hard to say that, but if we want farmers to have a decent living whilst producing food in a way that is sustainable, um, yeah. we need to pay for it. And at the moment, it's structurally too cheap. And that is exacerbated by unfettered subsidies by the government. And I think that um, that's the conversation as a nation that we need to have. I'd much rather see the government provide support for low-income families in, 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 in buying food. But I think, that, I think that a lot of this stuff is gonna happen through the market, the stuff that I'm talking about. Mm. Um, I think government policy is enormously helpful. So landowners being offered X amount of money per acre for creating a wild belt or for, 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 for restoring wildflower meadows or whatever it is, that's hugely helpful. But a lot of it is going to happen anyway. And I, I, I just want to describe one such market that exists. So, so the Wessex Water Company figured that they were going to have to spend an enormous sum of money on a new plant in Poole to reduce phosphates and nitrates and soil in the form of sediment mm -hmm. from drinking water. And some bright spark within Wessex Water said, well, instead of spending these hundreds of millions here, why don't we simply pay farmers further up the catchment not to use nitrates and phosphates? and to stop the soil washing into the streams and rivers. 
Emerging from that was a deal which is now goes by the term Ntrade. In fact, you can look it up, ntrade.co.uk, E-N-Trade, one word, whereby farmers are being paid by Wessex Water around 25 million a year. I think there are 300 participating farmers not to soak their land in phosphates and nitrates and to allow the regeneration of scrub and woodland on the steeper slopes closest to the rivers and streams. The Environment Agency is also a participant in that scheme because they recognize that these payments would also help reduce the cost of protecting pool itself from flooding. Now that was such a success that Ntrade is now a company and they're working on 12 similar deals up and down the country. And these deals are a lot more generous than the environmental land management scheme that the government is proposing. So landowners that are in one of these catchments and that participate in one of these deals are gonna receive quite generous amounts of money for delivering these environmental services and it's completely outside of the scope of government. These are private transactions. And if you add to that carbon, well, carbon is gonna be a huge market. Microsoft is just one of the world's biggest companies which have announced that they're not just gonna offset the carbon that they inevitably will emit each year, but they're gonna offset every ton of carbon they've ever emitted. So in Microsoft's um, uh, um, um, case, that's 650 million tons of carbon as at today. If you take an average price of $10 a ton, that's $6.5 billion that they're going to have to give to landowners and farmers around the world to right. offset the carbon they've emitted. So yeah. voluntary carbon is going to become a massive market. Mark Carney, who used to be governor of the Bank of England until last year, reckons it'll be $100 billion a year market worldwide by 2025. So add carbon to these private markets and suddenly landowners are going to receive quite generous payments for doing the right thing with their land. Um, irrespective of what government policy says. So I think um, it's that's very exciting. Yeah, I do too. I, I, share, I share your enthusiasm that both those uh, incentives provide and the direction that one should add that these companies, which are no, also individuals are taking, you know, frankly slightly leading the arguments uh, over government policy, um, such as it is. And I, I, I do share with you that optimism that uh, value carbon trading um, would be a really interesting transition for farming to be reconsidered by. I think that's a viable proposition. Um, and um, it's, it's, a, and uh, it's, sorry, it's a viable proposition, not just for those who are doing um, dramatic kind of landscape change, rewilding and so on. It's a hugely dramatic proposition for those who are growing uh, um, barley or, um, or carrots, because mm. if they do so using regenerative techniques, mm. the soil itself, whilst producing the barley and the carrots, also stores huge amounts of carbon. And Woody Harrelson made a film on this called Kiss the Ground, which is really worth watching yeah. uh, because we can feed the world whilst rebuilding our soil uh, through regenerative approaches. And um, if we don't do that, losing soil at two or 3% a year, the next generation is gonna have a real problem figuring out how to feed itself. Right, absolutely right. And I think this is, you know, again, you know, to, to track back onto the uh, the sort of topic of conversation or the mode of our sort of translating this information, shared information is, is to share and really it's fascinating science and knowledge. I mean, we're in a wonderful position to know far more about our environment than we ever have done before. Um, and it's lovely to hear someone who's, you know, passionate about it and, and you know, really making it their life career, as you, as you have said uh, at the beginning of the I'm making myself very annoying for um, officials in DEFRA. Well, I, I was who are actually on the whole really, really good. They're really brilliant people. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think people go to work in DEFRA or any of its agencies if they don't kind of care about nature and the environment. And I find that, um, yeah, yeah, there's some pretty brilliant people there. Um, and um, the um, but you're going to come up. I mean, you are a radical, really, in the narrative that you're pursuing, uh, and uh, that's right that you should be. Um, the um, and I, but so I wonder if you're going you know, to kind of clash occasionally with things like the NFU. I've just had a question coming through uh, whether uh, what Minette Blatters would think about uh, uh, rewilding with beavers. Well, I think we can leave that. Uh, I, I, I can answer that. I mean, I think that, the, I think that there, are, um, there are some progressive voices, including Minette, in the National Farmers Union, who recognise that some of these income streams could be really, really significant for farmers and and it's a progressive transition in the sense that those farmers who don't produce food in a way that is profitable or particularly productive today in most cases have the most to gain yeah. from these kinds of payments so if you're if you're a somerset levels um livestock farmer 
most likely you're running an extremely unprofitable business, which is propped up by taxpayer handouts. But if you start looking at the carbon sequestration potential and the potential you can you, for, for income from um, uh, avoiding flooding and reducing nitrates and phosphates runoff, and the income you might get from a and b hotel or, or kind of winter kayaking, um, you, you suddenly realize that these new income streams could be transformational for farmers across a majority of the land surface of our country. So I think that um, I think there are some progressive voices within the National Farmers Union that recognize that this could be a massive win for for farmers. Um, I, I think that there are some who just inherently reject change, you know, knee jerk, you know, in the same way that some anglers refuse to accept that beavers don't eat fish. Well, um, they, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver eat fish, but in real life, beavers are vegetarian. But there are anglers who are still stand up and say they're going to eat my salmon. And um, you know, there, I think that it's the same in any movement. You know, I think you have um, you have a rump of of those who simply won't change, and there's nothing we can do about that. But there is a big enlightened segment, I think. Yes, I mean, I've, I've always believed in the power of proposition to change. So, so it's it's just a question of approaching from a different point of view. I mean, you know, a wall is a wall until you walk around the other side of it. And yeah. so, it, it 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 is interesting, and there is, I think, you know, we would be in a strange situation, I think, thankfully, we've just seen the last of the climate deniers leave office uh, at 12 o'clock today. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, it is a that is a passing of time of, I think, for me, at least, a high watermark of people being prepared to take a position of there isn't an effect that we aren't having effect that we aren't in some way all collaboratively, and that's the key word, responsible for change and making changes. It's a question of identifying which tools are at our disposal. Um, and so um, I wondered if we could just take this um, conversation into that uh, particular territory and think about, for example, uh, us individually here, what we could do. You have a, uh, a position, you have an interest in, in land and farming back in the UK, and I know you've taken steps uh, there as well uh, to introduce what you believe in. We'd love to hear about that. And also, I think probably what individual uh, elements uh, could be taken on what, for example, would you say to to me? What could I do uh, individually? So I think um, I think the power of the individual really is. Um, I think there are three things that that, that really people can do. I, I think the first is to join an environmental organisation, give them five quid a month or five grand a month or whatever it is you can afford. Um, only, only somewhere between two and three percent of total philanthropy in the world is directed towards environmental issues. Um, it's a tiny, it's a tiny sum proportionally, um, and um, these organisations are really all that stands between us and Armageddon. I mean, you look at what's happening outside of the UK. Look at the rampant destruction of rainforests in Indonesia and the looming disappearance of really iconic species. I mean, the cheetah, for example, has dropped from a hundred thousand down to 10,000 in the last 15 years. The cheetah is gonna disappear. The lion is on the verge of disappearing. These things are, um, we see them on Attenborough programs and we think they're still there in numbers, but they're not. So, so we need to be supporting WWF who are, you know, will have a kind of regional office in, in Rwanda, you know, and they're the only thing that stands between the destruction of the last rainforests of Rwanda. So we need to join environmental groups in droves and beef them up and support them. And there are loads to choose from, from the very local to, to the global. Um, I think the second thing is how we spend our money. Um, there are quite clearly things that we ought not to be buying. You know, that kind of plastic tat that our children's godparents quite often deliver on Christmas day, which is broken by the evening or which has no mechanism for removing and changing the battery. You know, this kind of every day we make purchasing decisions. I think we should be buying stuff which is, um, you know, to, to the best of our ability. You know, we should be buying stuff which is not going to create huge yeah. problems. And and thirdly, I was going to say it's how we vote. You know, I think we need to put pressure. And we need to be less tribal. And we, you know, I voted for Ken Livingston. I'm a conservative. I voted for Ken Livingston because I believed in the congestion charge. You know, and I, I also gave money to Caroline Lucas, even though I disagree with her and lots of her woke kind of bollocks. I thought it was worth um, having a green MP in Parliament. So I think I think it's it's join a group. It's 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 ha choose how you spend your money wisely and just kind of think through this stuff. And it's um, you know, vote wisely and make your voice heard. And and then there's sorry, can I just give one one yeah. other? Sorry, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. But um, 
there is um i think those of us that are lucky enough to have a bit of land and i guess there are you know if they're customers of messams and they're bound to have you know be some in there that've got a bit of land i think the opportunity to do a bit of rewilding yourself really is about the most spiritually fulfilling rewarding thing you can possibly do in your life i mean it's just um you know and whether that is creating a wildlife friendly garden you know leaving leaving a log pile for example or creating a pond or putting up some bird boxes or leaving an uncut untidy corner through the winter you know, that or whether it's a slightly bigger piece of land where you decide consciously to set some or all of it aside for nature you know that that is um in, enormously rewarding and i've often gone to the cotswolds to stay with people and um you know people who are very rich and who have you know a thousand acres of woefully unproductive land and it is farmed to within an inch of its life and i sort of wonder you know what you know why are you you know i know we've got to feed the country but i guarantee your farm's not making a dent mm-hmm. and you know why do you do this if you if you had a thousand acres in 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 biritz or in andalusia or in kenya or in wyoming or in basically anywhere else in the world you would celebrate and 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 kind of relish the amount of nature that you had there and you'd tell stories about the wildlife that you have whereas in the cotswolds you want it to be kind of tarmac you know kind of plowed for sort of you know grazed to an inch within an inch of its life by sheep and i think that you know if one's privileged enough to own a piece of land i think setting some of it or all of it aside for nature in the context that we've discussed is yeah. um is a no brainer so if you yeah. but all the people advising you will tell you not to you know i've got close friends who've thought about turning their highly unproductive piece of land into something a bit more interesting for nature and there's always a reason why you can't you know there's always some contract or some kind of grant scheme or some kind of reason why you can't do it and and the answer is you have to just sweep all that aside and do it and and um i think you i mean it's a it's well described i think it parallels very well with the way that we would look at so art for us is a language of appreciating nature so when we are introducing uh, works of art and objects often as not they're telling a story and that story is normally about observation and it strikes me that one of the things that runs through your narrative is this core interest in observation really studying and understanding and i suppose understanding also what those objects really mean uh, both in their scarcity and also in their cycle of life so a sort of celebration of the big uh, game but also the small insect that's crawling around doing a wonderful job of recycling life um is is part of it um i agree yeah i i like i i i, I it's great to hear uh, you talk about these things and um the uh conversation i obviously welcome you all to take uh part if you did i should have said earlier i'm sorry to uh introduce your thoughts via the chat bar on the right hand side and we'll we'll weave those into a uh, uh, a conversation and a question um, um, as as we go on, but um, kind of, I mean, money is an interesting metric, and I feel like we're in a good we're in good company to talk about its ability to do good uh, and its ability to activate. And and you touched on that question, which is a you know a good one. We can all psychologically see it, and we're you know making steps to dial it out of our lives, which is. Um, uh buying this unnecessary stuff so i kind of wondered whether you know consumption itself might need a little bit of a kind of a dressing down i suppose or, or a reconsidering um so when you put a price on something i wondered you know whether or not perhaps part of that price should be effectively its carbon consequence um and so you know to look at microsoft it's great endeavor i kind of would feel comfortable if it said to me Part of this price is about putting you back in the soil where you came from, and that's yeah. a percentage. So, 10, 5, 20%, 50% of your actual object cost covers it. So, I, so I, I think we should be doing that through the tax system and through the regulatory system. Right. Because I, I mean, I'm a believer in free market enterprise. That's why I typically vote conservative. But I don't take America. I don't think America really is a, a bona fide free market. I mean, if I build a factory pig farm in you know, in, in, in kind of somewhere on the eastern seaboard and cram 100,000 miserable pigs into a kind of, um, in a kind of, in, into a kind of factory. Yeah. That, that unit is going to produce vast amounts of pig slurry, which yeah. at the moment I'm at liberty simply to dump into the river, which poisons the air, poisons the river, 
Um, Chesapeake Bay has become a kind of dead zone. Fishing is more or less finished in some of these parts of the eastern seaboard because of the runoff from industrial pig farming. And I'm getting a free ride. So I think we need a regulatory system which internalizes those externalities and makes the polluter pay. Now, I should be responsible for all those costs. Society should not be bearing the environmental or health costs of, of individual businesses. Otherwise, yeah. it's not a free market. Yeah. So I think a lot of it can be done at the company level through a robust and properly enforced regulatory system. I, yeah. I, don't, think, I don't think in, in the UK, I don't think water companies should be at, at, at will to chuck human sewage into our rivers. If you draw a line from the wash to the Isle of Wight, all of the rivers to the right of that line are polluted to death by human sewage. And yeah. all of the rivers to the left of that line are polluted to death by animal slurry. But I don't think water companies or livestock farmers should be free to do that. Why should we, broader society, bear those costs? So I, I would internalize all externalities and I would make the polluter pay rigorously. And that, only by doing that, I think, can we call ourselves a genuinely free market. Otherwise, people are getting a free ride. Um, and, and in terms of individual consumers, um, uh, 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 you know, we, we then have a clearer conscience that the stuff we're buying has already had those externalities kind of factored into the price, even if the price goes up somewhat. Um, and I think just as an extension to that answer, I think the move towards circular economy is one of the greatest changes that are gonna happen in the economy in, in our lifetimes. And I'll just give you one example of what I mean by circular economy. So the, the German Highways Agency or whatever it's called, Autobahn, um, used to employ Philips to sell them lamps and the bulbs for those lamps. And of course, Philips had no interest whatsoever in the efficiency with which those bulbs use electricity because they're not paying the electricity bill, the, the highways agency is. And they also had an incentive that those bulbs wouldn't last very long so that the agency would keep buying more and more bulbs. And they also had an incentive to make sure that those lamps required replacement and endless maintenance because they're the ones doing the replacing and the maintenance. So the German highways agency flipped the arrangement on its head and said, we don't wanna buy lamps and light bulbs from you anymore, Philips. We wanna buy lumens or lighting services. You are gonna be responsible for lighting this motorway or this network of motorways, and we'll pay you by the kilometer per year. And immediately Philips then had a direct incentive to make the bulbs more efficient and make the bulbs longer lasting and make the lamps um, require less maintenance. So this circular economy model has brought unbelievable environmental gains as well as saving the highways agency money and has spurred um, an extraordinary innovation in street lighting. The similar things are now happening with office carpeting and uh, coffee capsules and um, all sorts of things. So I think that moving towards a kind of circular economy away from a linear one where you dig stuff out the ground, manufacture something, use it for a bit and then chuck it back in the ground in a landfill site, towards something which is circular and doesn't allow the leakage of raw materials, I think is really, really exciting. And um, this, this, um, the best report on circular economy was produced by an institute that Ellen MacArthur found. And she is the, the girl who yeah. circumnavigated the, the globe on her own on a sail ship and expecting to be harried by whales, dolphins and seabirds, she instead found herself sailing through an ocean of plastic and um, was so traumatized by that, that she's devoting her life to eliminating plastic from our lives. Um, so I think um, circular economy is another way in which we can minimize our own impact by trying to participate in those economic models where we can try to rent stuff and, 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 and um, yes. Yeah. I, I've, uh, again, uh, uh, have wholly agree with you. I think it's one of the most exciting things about our kind of time, if you like, on this planet is to rethink these paradigms uh and what's wonderful is you know as human beings as individuals once we kind of see things in a different light it's amazing how quickly we readapt and adopt different strategies uh to come yeah. out so um i can see uh very much that and it's precisely where i was uh hoping you'd you'd take this plan not at all surprised knowing how much you've achieved already uh but lovely no. to, to share it with you uh and and thank you for stimulating us uh, and making us uh, believe and think about what's possible as well um, and the parts that we can involve with. Um, I'm, I'm very appreciative. There's, there's one or two um, 
uh, questions, but do feel free. I mean, it's 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 your evening as well. You've been kind enough to spend it with us uh, for the last 50 minutes or so. Uh, and so thank you very much for um, joining us. Do feel free to take part. Uh, I've answered a couple of people's questions who've answered uh, and asked uh, through and, uh, as we've been going on. And, and um, uh, I could very, if I could relay a question, I sort of have to find a way to track this back in. Um, but um, it's a question which we've been asked about um, uh, beef farming. So I wonder if we might sort of keep all those thoughts we've raised now in our minds and just let them percolate through. And we'll track on to a question that uh, William has asked about, um, about beef farming. And I suppose this is, uh, to understand this phraseology, it's really a question like uh, the volume of beef that we're probably consuming at the moment uh, and the inevitable production of methane that's, that comes off the back of it. How can we, I suppose, square that particular problem of still yeah. what we want? So, so I think, um, so on beef, um, so I'm not in the camp that believes we should have no beef or no meat. Um, I think we should eat less and better. Yeah. Um, so the idea of eating beef every day is, um, is, is anathema to me. I think we need to eat much less of it. It shouldn't be this God-given right that we eat it every single day. I think less and better, but we do need some because as I've explained, we need cattle in our wilder landscapes, except where we're gonna bring back the kind of wild equivalents. You know, in, in the wilds of kind of the Spanish Portuguese border, they're rebuilding wild populations of bison, for example, and same in Romania's Carpathian mountains. But I think in Britain, more likely, given the kind of 3000 year history of kind of farming in, in our landscape, I think native cattle are a much better solution uh, for that reason. So we need cattle in our wilder landscapes, and we also need cattle in regenerative farming because a core tenet of regenerative farming is that you cycle the land between arable and livestock. It's the livestock that kind of shit and trample and, and kind of rebuild the structure of the soil, um, as you'll see in Woody Harrelson's film. So yeah. we need cattle in kind of rotational regenerative systems, even on our most productive land. So yeah. we still need to produce some beef and finally, I would say that um, there is a revolution coming in food production, whether we hate it or like it. Yeah. And that is the manufacture of food without, of, of proteins without using animals. 70-ish um, percent of the beef produced in the world is used as bland, uh, anonymous mints in kind of burger patties and things like that. If you can produce that either from concoctions made of plants, as Impossible and Beyond Burger do, or through cell-grown cultures, as um, uh, others do, and you can do so cheaper than, than getting it from a cow, yeah. then people are going to buy it. It's, it. That's what you're going to find in the kind of own brand Walmart burgers or kind of drive-through, you know, in, in kind of Midwest America. Yeah. So I think that the manufacture of things like patty beef and milk and, and, um, and, um, and, and, and all of that, I think is going to revolutionize food production. Um, and um, we need to bear that in mind. I think that's a really interesting point, and I, I, I know the research you're re referring to that, and it is worth contextualizing into this because the question is right to ask about the production of methane uh, by beef cattle, but this is largely because they're fed incorrectly. They're also fed on soybean, which is one of the most destructive processed plants that's been farmed at the moment. Uh, and we had a very interesting point from uh, our talker last week about the use of algae to, to feed uh, beef cattle, which reduce the methane production. It's not really kind of there to uh, eat soy, but ultimately uh, to take it on as you have done to that point further, really, you know, in the, as, the, as, as, as you know, the, the cow is just literally a vehicle for protein. So if you took the vehicle out and thought, well, where do you want to get to? You want to get to protein, then you've probably got a more radical solution uh, as well. Which is going to happen. I think. I think. What it's not. It's not going to affect the top of the market. In a way, your kind of quality ribeye steak in the kind of Angus steakhouse, I think, is going to come from an Angus cow, preferably in a kind of wilder landscape somewhere up in in kind of the borders of Scotland. Whereas I think that it's it's the kind of 60, 70 percent bottom of the market, and the same applies to milk. Dairy companies in America are already starting to go bust because they're being, they're being knocked out of business from the top of the market by things like oat milk and almond milk. And at the bottom of the market, they're gonna get outbid by people like Perfect Day who make milk in vats using enzymes. You know, so I think um, food technology is gonna be transformational. And there's an amazing report by a think tank called 
Rethink X. If you just type in Rethink X and look at their food and agriculture report, and they're forecasting that 50% of America's agricultural land will be um, freed up for other uses in, uh, in, in kind of 10 years time. Um, they have a really radical forecast where they predict that American dairy industry will be all but bust by 2030. Um, so, so love it or hate it, this thing is, is coming. Yeah. I, well, actually, I, I think I'll, I'll position it in that way because uh, it is actually funny. Uh, Tim Smith is uh, tackling this uh, question and more towards the end of our series uh, in mid-Feb. Um, and I'm not at all surprised to hear that you have uh, um, thought through um, the significance. Um, David Starman is, oh, so David, sorry, I should say, is, is online and has asked to raise a question. And I, I wondered if, David, I could yeah. win. Um, ben, first of all, I agree with every single thing you said, except for voting for Ken Livingston. I think that's, ah, that, I'm that's sorry. a serious question. Mark. Um, but it's really more, this is slightly off the subject that we've been on, but how do you, you've got an audience now of fundamentally people who are interested in the arts collection you're talking about. How can you connect what you're saying uh, and, and, and everything that you're saying to the art world and how can people in the art world help the environment uh, without writing a book about the subject? Is there anything which triggers your thinking on this? Yeah, I think, um, so I think that we, so we, I, so I think the, the the kind of overriding challenge, more important than anything that I've said or that any any of this stuff, I think is to try and reconnect people with nature or, or the kind of to, to re-enchant nature for people. Now there, there was a term that I didn't know until very recently called biophilia, and biophilia describes the innate empathy that we all have for the non-human world, whether it's flowers, plants wildlife, dogs, and in most people, that biophilia is dormant after childhood. For some reason, we're doing something wrong in that we're really the first society in the history of humanity that doesn't find enchantment or, if you like, God in nature. And I think that the overriding challenge of, humani of humanity right now is to rediscover, um, well, I think to rediscover God in nature. I don't know whether that God is the right word, but I, I think that we need to have a kind of, um, you know, um, we need to rediscover our mystical connection with nature. And, and it's still there, even the, that friend of any of ours who has the least interest in the countryside or nature is willing to pay double for an apartment which overlooks Central Park versus one that doesn't. Everyone wants a hotel that overlooks the sea when they go on holiday. We, we, the parks are full of people whenever the sun comes out. It, it, it is there but it's just hidden for some reason. And so I think the arts can play an, an exceptionally important role in re-enchanting nature, because I think that's the only way we're gonna save it. I, I, um, think, I don't know how. Well, I think they would probably, there was gonna be a lot of artists in this community as well who would say that they have taken a very primacy role of, of spending the time looking um, and they are translating their concerns. There's a lot of environmental artists, we're showing one at the moment, who've made it their career to point out the diminishing prospects of, of nature. And I think what's lovely is a homogeneity. And David, I wonder whether you might take a view that uh, creativity, which is, if you like, the aspect of being able to engineer our way into new ideas, is fundamentally the DNA link between science and art. Both things sit together and without it, neither one really sparks out. So you might be looking at the same thing. I agree. We're, we're only going to get so far with kind of a cold economic analysis of the costs and benefits of restoring mangroves or rebuilding the soil. You know, that's essential, but it's only going to get us so far. You know, we, we, we need to go further. We, 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 we need to feel a sense of disgust on a spiritual level when we see a plastic bag in the river. You know, that's, that's where we need to get to. And I think the arts are going to play a really important role in that. Thank you, well said. Um, and um, I'm just looking for, um, I know they put their hand down, so there we are. So, so and, and, and lovely to hear actually for one of the other people, Wendy, who said that we're already working with an environmental and arts programme in, in Andover, and that sounds brilliant. We'd love to hear more of that uh, and send a link onto the chat, onto the chat if you'd like to. Um, um, and um, I really, I think, um, 
we we could uh, we could carry we could carry on. It's not a topic that you want to leave. I think it's fair to say, uh, and it doesn't sound like it's a topic that you'll be leaving uh, anytime soon uh, either. Um, so I wondered if just to finish off, you you might have a, a view as to where you uh, would like to be in a year's time. What would Ben be saying to uh, Ben of twenty twenty one when he's in twenty two? What, what's the I don't know. I um. I just look for opportunities to make a difference. I know in my mind what nature recovery in Britain looks like, broadly, and I just try to use every lever I can get my hands on to make it happen. So that might mean spending an afternoon helping to raise one hundred and fifty thousand pounds for a group of organisations in Scotland, which um, it has been announced today are going to work towards links reintroduction in the Highlands. Or it might be um, uh, participating in a roundtable at DEFRA on how the environmental land management scheme can be most effectively used to restore wood pasture in our uplands. I just try to grab every opportunity at, at my disposal to try and make a difference in that way. And um, I don't claim to be an expert or wildly influential. I just, I'm just sort of, you know, I'm no quantum physicist, but Einstein I know wrote that if you look at atoms and a vibrating atom, uh, causes the others around it to vibrate and I just try to be that vibrating atom one of many and uh, so I don't know that there is any kind of longer term goal but I, I certainly have a number of objectives that I yeah. that I that I hope to achieve in 2021 um, but um, I don't know if there's an overarching ambition and I don't have any particular personal goal I don't look forward to being um, you know Sir Ben Goldsmith KBO or whatever that doesn't interest me at all <laughs> I, uh, I, just I love my mother got my my, my 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 mother who comes from quite a grand kind of old English family and when my brother Zach was made Lord Goldsmith of Richmond Park and everyone was delighted and, and my mother was delighted but she said to me quietly it does sound rather common <laughs> <laughs> Only your mother could say that to your son, uh, and um, you've you've done a brilliant job of of uh, activating all of us. So thank you very much, Ben, uh, for joining us, and thank you all very much for being part of this lovely evening as well. And have a safe and pleasant evening. Thank you for having me. <laughs>